Section number 11 of The Man Who Understood Women and Other Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Man Who Understood Women and Other Stories by Leonard Merrick. Chapter 11, A Letter to the Duchess. You said to me last night, Duchess, you are a great musician, Sokolowski, but a great musician may be a great fool. I had vexed you. If I should not know that, forgive me. Perhaps it is common of me to recognize that I vexed you. I shall always be ignorant of the best manners. Pray be indulgent to my ignorance. Pray let me write to you boldly, because I have something to say. But how difficult it is! I am a vulgarian who can express himself only by his violin. I want to say that when you looked at me so kindly, I was not the dolt and ingrate that I seemed. I was very proud, very honored. If I appeared insensible of your interest, it was because I had just been stricken by a grief which I dared not hint. I arrived at your house late last night. You will be revolted to learn what delayed me. When my recital was over, and I had escaped from the fashionable ladies who scrambled to kiss my hands and pull buttons from my coat as keepsakes, I hurried to a minor music hall to hear a girl in tinsel sing a trashy song. I hurried there because I loved her, Duchess, and I had much to think of when I left. To understand what was in my heart when I reached your drawing room, you must read my love story from the beginning, my very vulgar love story that will disgust you. Most of the things that you have seen about me in the papers were false, anecdotes invented by my agent. The public ask for anecdotes of their favorite artists, and it is business to give the public what they want. I generally play the music that they want, though it is seldom the music that I like best. I say that most of the things you have heard about me were false, but this much is true. My father was a peasant, and I have fiddled in a fair. I was happy. I have been told of artists who suffered agonies in their youth, always tortured by ambition and dismayed by their obscurity. With me, it was quite different. I was more joyous in a tent than I am now on the platforms. I even knew at the time that I was happy. That says much. Ungrateful, perhaps I sound to you? Still, I shall be frank. I was 13 when I first heard the words, you will be famous. I was on my way to buy some apples, and the discussion that detained me bored me a great deal. So ignorant was I that I swear to you, fame said no more to me than that one day I should fiddle with a roof of wood over my head, and that storekeepers and farmers would spell my name from a bill at the doors. My patron had me educated. To him I owe not only my position in the musical world, but the fact that I am able to write this letter. I shall not weary you by describing the years of study. When I began to understand what lay before me, my apprenticeship looked like an endless martyrdom. More than once, I was at the point of fleeing from it. There is, they say, a special department of providence for the protection of fools. It is providence, no wisdom of my own, that I have to thank that I am not still a vagrant scraping to villagers among the show wagons. The plans mapped out for me succeeded in spite of myself, 
At last the time arrived when it was said, Now we will commence. Of course, I had come to my senses before this. So far from hankering after the tents of my boyhood, I was ashamed to remember that I had ever played in them. So far from picturing fame as the applause of shopkeepers in a shed, I thirsted for something more than the reception accorded me at my debut. Ambition devoured me now. If I have the right to praise myself for anything, it is for the devotion with which I worked during the five years that followed. Well, I made a furor. Audiences rained roses on me and struggled to reach the platform. Great ladies invited me to their receptions and bent their eyes on me as if I were a god. I found it frightfully confusing. Under my veneer, under my fashionable suit, I was still the peasant who had held his cap for coppers. I discovered that it was necessary for me to do more than master my art, that I was required to say interesting things to people who frightened me. My popularity suffered a little because I could not do it. The agent was furious at my bashfulness. You must speak to the ladies as if you were in love with them, he told me, or if you cannot do that, be rude, make an effect somehow. You answer as if you were a servant. Many of my eccentric remarks that you have heard, Duchess, have been composed with difficulty and practiced with care. The world will not have us as we are. My agent often returns a portrait poster of me to the printer with the instructions, put more soul into the eyes. I am coming to my love story. It was no further back than last year that I first met her. I had given a recital at Blythe Point and was remaining there for a few days rest. One evening, I went to a variety of entertainment in the pavilion on the pier. In the bill were three girls described as the three sisters Clicquot. They appeared as theater attendants, the program sellers who show you to your box, and sang to a rather plaintive air that they once hoped to be stars themselves. And then, having blossomed into gauze and spangles, they burlesqued melodrama. After their turn, Two of the trio came into the stalls, and, by chance, I spoke to one of them. A strong man had broken a sixpence in halves and thrown the pieces over the footlights. The girl asked me to let her see the piece that I had picked up. I do not suppose I exchanged twenty words with her, and certainly I gave no thought to the incident. But a night or two later, I drifted onto the pier again and came face to face with her after the performance was over. She greeted me gaily. Hello, have you been in front? No, I said, I am only strolling. Where are your sisters? Are they really your sisters? Oh no, she answered. It's Nina Clicquot's show. Good name to choose, eh? The other girl, Eva Jones, and I are engaged by her, that's all. This is my card. From a battered perch, she took a card on which was printed, Miss Betty Williams, the three sisters Clicquot. We were near the entrance to the buffet. Will you come and have a drink? I asked. Oh, I don't think I will, thanks, she said. I'm waiting for Eva. I might miss her. Oh, you'd better come, I said. We went in and sat down at one of the tables. She did not strike me as particularly good-looking then. The spell of her face lay in its changefulness, and as yet I had not seen it change, for her capabilities as an actress were of the slightest. 
I saw merely a pale, slim girl, becomingly dressed in some dark stuff that was rather shabby. When she lifted her brandy and soda, a fingertip showed through a glove. I wondered why I had brought her in, and was glad that there was no crowd to recognize me. It wasn't until she told me so that I was sure she recognized me herself. She said, I have never heard you play. I should love to. Did you get many people in down here? I couldn't help smiling. Yet it had a pleasant ring, that question. It revived the past. The days when I used to see the takings divided on the drum. Oh, she exclaimed, laughing. I forgot. Of course you did. I'm not used to talking to big guns. But there was no embarrassment in her apology. She might have been living among big guns all her life. How long have you been at it? I asked her. The halls? Three years, she said. I was on the stage for a little while, not that I was up to much. I was the starving heroine once. The manager said I was the worst leading lady he had ever seen, but that I looked the part because I was all bones. I am a skeleton, aren't I? I chucked the stage. The halls pay much better, and my voice isn't bad. Of course, it's not a trained voice, but it isn't too bad, eh? We have two shows a night next week. That means five pounds to me. Good for little Betty. By the way, she was not little. What do you do with the money? One must say something. Oh, I've plenty to do with it, she said. A husband to keep? Give us a chance, she laughed. No, but mother doesn't make much by the shop anymore. She's a costumier, and there are the kids to bring up. I have two young brothers. She did well once. I used to go up west to try for engagements, dressed to kill. She lent me the models to put on. I often didn't have a twopence in my pocket, but I looked a treat. The only thing was, I was so afraid of its raining, then we couldn't sell the model. You've had hard times, I said, interested. She nodded gravely. Rough. I've always found very good pals, though. When I went into the course at the regalia, I and a friend of mine had an ascent between us for bus fares, and there was an old Johnny, one of the syndicate, who took to us. Quite straight. He said, Look here, I know you two girls aren't getting enough to eat. I've booked a table at the truck and you're both to lunch there right through the rehearsals. If you can't get away for lunch, it's to be dinner, but one square meal a day the two of you must have regularly, or there'll be rose. Mind, it isn't to be a meal for more than two. Her face lit with laughter. There were some boys in the chorus just as stony as we were. My friend would lunch one day, I'd lunch the next, we'd each take a boy in turn. But the old man found out what was going on, and the trot was off. I've had cases of champagne sent to me, if you please. He was a wine merchant's son, wanted to marry me. His screw in the business was about a pound a week. Nice little fellow. He always called me Jack. He used to say, I can't come in the pit to see the show tonight. I haven't got a bob. But have a case of champagne, Jack. I'll send you one round. It doesn't cost me anything. I liked it. For years, I had conversed with only two kinds of women, the women who awed me and the women who were odd. In five minutes, I was as spontaneous as she. Her tones were, for the most part, very pleasant, and now that she was animated, 
The play of her features fascinated me. When we had finished our drinks, we sauntered round and round the pavilion. The performing birds are on, she said as we caught the music. I hate that show. I hate an audience for standing it. Don't they know it's cruel? Performing birds make me think of the first bird you see die. You're a child. It's generally the first time you've looked at death. You bury your bird in the garden, and you line a grave with flowers, so that the horrid earth shan't touch it. Her voice fell to a whisper. By the burst of applause that reached us in the moonlight, I knew that the pavilion was packed. That's Heracles, the strong man, she said as we listened again. What did you think of him? He's in love with my sister. I mean, Eva Jones. He wanted to kiss her, and she put on side. Oh, Eva was very haughty. Sir, how dare you? He had hold of her finger, and he drew her to him as if she had been a piece of paper. It was so funny to see her going. He worshipped the ground she walks on, fact. That was the reason his challenge night was a frost. Didn't you hear about his challenge night? He bet that no twelve men in Blythe Point could pull him over the line. Then he got drunk because she wouldn't have anything to do with him, and they pulled him all over the place. It cost him ten pounds, beside his reputation. He cried. Ah, little girl, he said to her, it is all through you. It was amazing that on the stage she could not act. As I heard her tell this story, I would have sworn she was a born comedian. The exaggerated dignity of Miss Jones, its ludicrous collapse, the humiliation of the strong man, she brought the scenes before me. Go on, I begged. Talk some more. But before she could talk much more, the obdurate Miss Jones appeared. I was presented and wished them good night. I could have seen them to their lodging, but, well, Miss Jones's attire was not to my taste, and she had forgotten to take the makeup off her eyes. I am writing more than I intended. I had no idea my explanation would be so long. The next night, I did walk to their lodging with them. It was Saturday, their last night in the town. On Monday, they were to sing in a London suburb. Miss Jones had to leave a parcel with an acquaintance at the Theatre Royale, and, in her absence, Betty Williams and I paced the street alone. For a quarter of an hour, perhaps. She was looking forward to the week at home. She was serious tonight. She talked to me of her mother and the boys. I said I hoped she would find them well, and we shook hands. Goodbye. The incident seemed closed, but I went away with an impression I had never experienced before. The impression of having met someone who ought to have been my very good friend. When I breakfasted on the morrow, I felt blank in realizing that her train had already gone. Every day I had to combat a temptation to run up to that suburb. When my holiday came to an end, I wondered if she was in town still. By a music hall paper, I ascertained that the three sisters Clicquot were in Derby. Each week I bought the paper to learn the movements of the three sisters Clicquot, and each week I told myself it would be absurd of me to follow her so far. Eventually, I followed her to Yorkshire. What a town! The grey grim streets, the clatter of the clogs, the women's hopeless faces under the shawls. 
I put up at a commercial hotel, there was nothing else, and was directed to the Empire. Their name was far down the program. Number 10, the Three Sisters Clicquot. I began to think that I should never reach it. Number 8 proved to be a conjurer, and my heart sank as I beheld the multitude of articles that he meant to use before he finished. Number 9 was a troop of acrobats. A dozen times they made their bows and skipped off, only to skip on again and do some more. At last, the number 10 was displayed. The little plaintive symphony stole from the orchestra. The three sisters filed on, Eva Jones, next Miss Clicquot, then Betty. I wondered if she would notice me. I saw her start. She smiled. I was so pleased that I had gone. She talked presently in the passage under the stage. She was very much surprised. I did not tell her that I was there only to meet her again. Once more, I walked with her and Eva Jones to the door. In the morning, I called on them. There were luncheons in the private room that I had been able to secure at the hotel. I went to tea with them at their apartments. In fine, I was very much in love, and I knew that I had been a fool. I knew it for a reason which will be difficult for you to credit, Duchess. This girl, who took a brandy and soda with a stranger in a bar, who accepted little presents from others, and dined with men who had only one motive for inviting her, remained perfectly virtuous. In different classes there are different codes. She did not regard her behavior as wrong. More, if she had committed the act which she knew to be wrong, she would have broken her heart. No matter how much a man cares for a girl, she said to me once, he can't have her any more sacred than she holds herself at the beginning. A girl saves herself for a man she is thinking of. She hasn't seen him. In all probability, she never will see him. But she is saving herself for him, the imaginary man, from her head to her heels. You shouldn't tell me I shouldn't do this, and I shouldn't do the other. I don't do any harm. If you knew how dull it is on tour, you'd understand my taking all the fun I can get. When a fellow asks me to lunch, I go. I say I'll go with another girl. That tells him everything, doesn't it? I swear to God, I've only let one man kiss me in my life. And then I only did it out of pity, because he was so cut up. A man is never dangerous till he's beaten. Do you know that? Well, I was not prepared to marry her, and she could be nothing to me if I didn't. I left Yorkshire with the firm intention of never seeing her any more. However, I missed her dreadfully, and at the end of a month, I succumbed again. I went to Lancashire this time. The same impatience in my stall, the same quiver of expectancy at the plaintive introduction that was so familiar now, the same throb as the three girls appeared. Why should I bore you with the details? I was with her all day, every day. Tea and chatter in the lodging became an institution, and we grew serious only when the melancholy dusk signaled her departure for the hall. She was not fascinated by her career. How I hate going in, she murmured sometimes, as we reached the artist's entrance, with a group of loafers spinning on the curb. And I sat in front, just to see the turn, and talked to her again between the first performance and the second, in the passage at the foot of the dirty steps, where such draughts poured through the slamming door, and the gas jet blew crooked in its cage. 
She was fond of me. I knew it. I had only to ask her to marry me. I knew that her consent wouldn't be due to my position. There were moments when I was very near to asking her. But I was Sokolowski, and she a third-rate variety artist. I shuddered to think what the society ladies would say if their god stooped. For that matter, what everybody would say. No woman could have been more different than the wife I had pictured. Yet no woman had ever been so truly a companion to me. Always a bohemian at heart, I had naturally fallen in love with a bohemian. But when he draws a portrait of the wife that he desires, every man is conventional. Besides, you, and great ladies like you, had made me a snob. She drove with me to the station on the day I left. She knew I wouldn't go to her again. I heard it in her voice. That was the only time I felt dull when I was with her. We both could have said so much and were allowed to say so little. I remember the look in her eyes as the train crept from the platform. I shall always remember the look in her eyes as she smiled on the platform. Even a weak man may be strong sometimes. In the wrong place, I stuck to my resolve. At first, I still glanced at the encore just to know where she was, but before long I denied myself this too. My American tour started soon afterwards. The change helped me while it lasted, but when I came back the struggle was as bad as ever. Six months had passed, and yet every day I hungered to see her. I was desperate. I didn't know what to do to keep myself in hand. Duchess, my motive in addressing you is to write the truth, even the truth that one blushes to acknowledge. When I welcomed the dawn of your interest in me, I turned to you as a chance of forgetting her. I did not mean to prove so obtuse as I appeared last night. Perhaps a gentleman might have seized the chance too, but, I suppose, only a cad would own it to you afterwards. And I couldn't forget. I never responded to your gaze without wishing it were hers. I resented the very gowns that you received me in because she was so poorly dressed. I hated myself for being in your drawing room while she was trudging through the rain. My God, it's awful to think like that of a woman, to have the thought of her beset you as you open your eyes in the morning, to think till you're worn out with thinking of her, and pray to think of something else, to think of her till you want to escape from your own mind. Tolerate me a little longer. I have nearly done. Last Saturday, it was a year since I had seen her. I broke down. I was ready to make her my wife. I wondered if she would look as pleased as she used to look when she saw me. And then I froze at the thought that the three sisters Clicquot might be abroad, that they might have vanished altogether. When I searched the encore again, I... There were emotions. The three sisters Clicquot. I found it. They were in Portsmouth on Saturday. Yesterday they were to be in town. It was impossible for me to go to Portsmouth. My prayer was that, after my recital yesterday, I may reach the London Hall before she left. I had no means of knowing whether their turn would be late or early. All through that recital I was torn with the fear that I might miss her. The audience delayed me beyond endurance. I was trembling when I escaped from them. I stumbled into the carriage and told the man to drive like mad. 
He couldn't find the stage door, and, too impatient to keep still, I leapt out and went to the box office. It was all right. They hadn't been on yet. There could be no chance to speak to her until the turn was over. Just as I used to do, I sat down to wait in the stalls. Just as I used to do, I read the name of the three sisters Clicquot in a program and wished that the preceding turn didn't last so long. I had taken it for granted that they would be giving a different song now, and my heart tightened at the greeting of that familiar symphony again. For an instant, I could not look at the stage. I knew, with my head bent, the moment when the three girls filed on. I knew where they were moving, how they were standing. Now the note that they were going to sing! I looked up for Betty's face and saw a stranger. Oh, the horrible woman, the low, horrible woman. And I had to watch her. I watched her in spite of myself. The audience laughed and shouted while I sat there with the sickness of terror in me, while I watched that horrible woman posturing in Betty's place and wearing the frock that Betty had worn. Afterwards, I found the artist's entrance, as I had proposed to find it, only I asked for Eva instead of Betty. She came down to me smiling in her stage costume. Who'd have thought of seeing you? She exclaimed as we shook hands. I was just going to change. How are you? I said dully, and our eyes questioned each other. I suppose you know about Betty, she said. I could only look at her. She's dead, she told me. The last turn was on. A comedian was bellowing doggerel. I listened to bars of it before I whispered. Dead? She got typhoid when we were in Lincoln. She died last month. Hadn't you heard? No. It's still the three sisters Clicquot on the bills. Oh yes, of course. It's always the three sisters Clicquot. The new girl's not as good as Betty was, don't you think so? I don't know. The comedian was dancing now. I heard the rattle of his feet. Shabby, pasty-faced men kept hurrying past us through the passage, up the dirty steps. The door at the top was slamming, and the gas jet blew crooked in its cage. It was strange to be among these things and not see Betty. Goodbye, I said. Did she ever talk of me after I went? Sometimes. She wasn't the girl to say much. Betty liked you, though. I liked Betty, I said. Well, well, she said, I must get along and change. Buck up. And then I went to you, your grace. I had promised to play to your guests, and I could not break my word. But you must understand what I was feeling while I played, that my thoughts were in a grave. And when we were alone, you may understand that, though you are charming and beautiful and a duchess, and exalted me by your caprice, I could not be guilty of that outrage, that adultery towards the dead. Most humbly, I beg you to believe that I am grateful for the honor you have done a man who was unworthy, who was loyal neither to you nor to her. You will never pardon me for this letter. Goodbye.
End of chapter 11.